Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Summary. So how do you go from Arctic warfare in the military to becoming a health tech entrepreneur? Should you bunk in the same office with your investors? How do you go from being a first to a second time founder? Can you close a health tech investment after a guy selling inflatable hammocks to the same investors? Well, we're going to answer all of those questions today because my guest is Matt Wilson from health tech startup UMED. Now, Matt's got a really interesting background, so he studied medicine at Cardiff University. He then went on to become a medical officer for the Royal Navy, so he was actually medical lead for the Royal Marines. He then went into training, so did some emergency medicine, did some anaesthetics training, became one of NHS England's clinical entrepreneurs, and then obviously got bitten by the entrepreneur bug. So started a company, but he's not only a first time, but a second time founder. So started another company called UMED, which we will talk all about in this episode. So UMED are doing all sorts of exciting stuff. They're using health record data to make clinical trials more efficient. They're matching patients to research opportunities and doing lots of other exciting stuff. They're essentially making life better for clinicians and organisations by saving with efficiency, enabling people's academic interests, increasing revenue for... Uh, healthcare organizations so we talk about lots of cool stuff from being a military medic to picking best idea to bouncing back stronger as a second time founder innovative business models with pharma companies and providers how to optimize for scale lots of cool stuff enjoy the episode this week cool so matt welcome to the hs health tech podcast how are you doing this morning mate oh, i'm very good thanks james Re- really appreciate the opportunity to come on no problems at all, dude. Uh, so whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Matt? Uh, so I'm speaking to us from our office, which is uh, just north of Hoban, actually. So central London. Oh, very um, central. Very central, which is very nice. And um, uh, we're actually co-bunking with our, our investors, actually. which, uh, which has Oh, its, really? Yeah, which has its, is, is, is actually almost entirely good parts. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Big um, brother's watching, mate. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's probably the slightly down, uh, downside part. <laughs> But um, fortunately, we're we're doing we're doing well, and we're on their good side. So I haven't, nice. I haven't had any um, sort of uh, nasty messages or, <laughs> or uh, like unpleasant presence left for me. Interesting. I've not heard of that done before. Actually, you're the first person I've ever heard say that they do that. It's really um, it's, it's really great for us because obviously they're they're giving it to us at a at a, at a better rate um, than we would do if we were of just. Of course, it's uh, their money uh, anyway, right? Uh, uh, exactly. And, and actually, it's just it, the timing worked out. Um, they don't do it for all of their companies um in fact very few but it was just the timing was right they had some space so um it, it made sense for us to do it ideal i'm sure we'll get into it a bit later but dude yeah it'd be great if you could tell me and our listeners your story yeah no problems so if i tell you a bit about me personally if that's yeah, if that's interesting um so uh, my background, like you, James, is clinical as well. And uh, I, I graduated from medical school in 2009 from Cardiff. But I was also one of those people that was a uh, sponsored medical undergraduate with the, with the Navy, actually. So the, the Royal Navy. And I actually did my commando training uh, and so spent about three years uh, after my junior doctor years, um, then away with the military. Uh, and really fortunate I got to... Um, basically kind of continue being at university but as a doctor um and having nice. <laughs> having having a lot of fun and uh very fortunate to get to lots of different places around the world Where did and, you go 
Well, so, so I was really lucky, actually. I got to do, uh, let, let me think. So I did Arctic warfare training up in Norway um, for about four months. Uh-huh. Uh, Kenya, uh, spent a lot of time in uh, sort of East Mediterranean around Albania. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Middle East, um, a bit of operational stuff in Somaliland. Um, wow. And uh, uh, and the US as well. So wow. so no Arctic warfare just sounds epic. To cold. be honest, I mean the amount of yeah sounds <laughs> sounds very cold. I mean, goodness, I mean the amount of discipline that you must have learned and work ethic at, at quite a young age in your working career that must have set you in uh, on a good path. Yeah, and I think I think that's actually one of the the, the great the great traits about military and, and the Royal Marines in particular is is that work ethic of of you know when they, they've got a and I think it actually translates into healthcare as well is that when mm. when there's work to be done you get on with it uh, mm. and, and, and you really dig deep and you're all in it together uh, and again I saw that in the junior doctors mess as, as, as much as it was in the military as well um you know when there's work to be done yeah on it's interesting it. that you know someone and this is not the same thing but <laughs> a management consultant once who um who said to me the thing is when you when you've done management consultancy you just learn how much work can actually be done in a day yeah i imagine that, that, yeah that's a similar thing that you feel if you're uh, if you're doing three years with the marines yeah absolutely and and the, the weird thing about it as well is that there's periods where um you know, you you don't sleep for kind of seventy two hours, and then mm. and then, but equally, there's kind of really downtime periods. And actually, the, the sort of segue here is actually some of the earliest ideas I had about sort of moving into entrepreneurship and and um, starting a business were actually in that uh, that sort of downtime mm. period. So I'd I'd done my bit of sort of the Arctic warfare training, and actually, I was broadly doing medical cover um, for a group of other people that were doing some exercises so and there wasn't a huge amount for me to do mm. so so actually rather than sort of watch back-to-back netflix or it wasn't there wasn't netflix then whatever it was just <laughs> back-to-back um uh bootlegged films it was um I, I thought i'd have a you know try and use the, the time a bit more wisely very cool so how did you how, how did you transition then so from from the military to then did you practice medicine in, in the uk as in, yes. in normal hospitals yeah, is, that, yeah. is that something that you did yeah, absolutely. So, so beyond um, junior doctor years, F one and F two, which was down in the southwest, uh, I then, after my military time, uh, spent about two years uh, in A and E. So, so working as a as a doctor yeah. there, and then um, went into an anaesthetic training program, um, which I did for a further three years um, before you know what we're doing now with UMED ended up you know needing to be a full time job uh, and mm. stepped away from that. So, um, yeah. So overall, had you know, best part of 10 years sort of clinical experience, both military and non-military. So how did you then get going in entrepreneurship and what you said, you had a few ideas obviously knocking around when you, I know myself, you know, when you're practicing as a doctor, you'll get an idea a minute of the amount of things that people moan about in the hospital. And if you've got an innovative bone in your body, you just tend to think, well, how can I actually solve this problem? So I imagine you're getting loads and loads of ideas. How did you decide on the idea that you were actually going to run with? That's a really good question. I, I think, um, and and to be completely honest, what the what UMed is now is is actually not that original idea. Uh, <laughs> As and, any and good it, startup, yeah, change, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's really interesting because even when you speak to um, honest VCs uh, and investors, mm-hmm. um, they they recognise that's the case as well, especially in these kind of early early ideas. And and that's not to say that the the first idea isn't a good one. It's more that inevitably 
they evolve um, mm. on, the, on the basis of things that you find out along the way and, you know, all of that good stuff and pivots. Um, and so actually sort of the first, uh, first idea I had was really around, uh, I've always been interested in research, got involved in some, some research when I was uh, in my clinical years. Um, and, but the frustration for me was you, everybody talked about clinical evidence um, uh, and, and seem to always reference clinical evidence, but I've never very rarely actually saw anybody read a paper you know a good point. paper and good actually and, and what actually was happening is it was just hearsay you know someone would speak to somebody would speak to somebody and then and so my first idea was kind of create a, a very easy access sort of commons around clinical research um, publications so you could um, more easily uh, reference that because I found that if you went from one hospital to the other people's interpretation of that evidence differed enormously um, based on the kind of dogma that was around in, in that specific hospital or site um and uh and and so i was very fortunate to get a little bit of seed money to be able to or a little bit of angel investment rather to um to pursue that and whilst that was something that that although i think was a, a great idea clinically uh or always a kind of need from uh the healthcare provider side of things it it wasn't a scalable business model yeah and it and it wasn't scalable because the, the you know crudely the cost per user acquisition to get people one curating all of that information and then getting people onto the platform was just too hard tell me what it was like realizing that because i imagine there are so many people listening that have got ideas or they've worked on ideas or they're currently working on ideas that might not be working I and mean, how tough was it for you for your very first idea your first foray into entrepreneurship to kind of come to terms with the fact hey actually this isn't working i might have to go back to a normal job or a normal yeah. thing or you know what was that like yeah, I mean, I, I think it's quite interesting because, uh, much like the idea, I think the the realization doesn't happen as a as a light bulb moment. Yeah. I think it's a sort of slow car crash, um, <laughs> and um, I, I I think there's this gut feeling of something's not right, yeah. um, and it and it and as much as you try to obviously do the good entrepreneurial things and 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 and, and try and take that lean approach and after a while it just feels like there's this you know there's this big issue that you can't necessarily articulate explicitly but it just doesn't feel quite right yeah um and i think the other thing is that you know one of the sort of bits of advice i'd give stroke you know things that i've recognized is you know the people that you are going to either for advice or asking for money um will either kind of very explicitly tell you what the problem is from and how they see it and they're not always right is yeah. what to say um but i think if people are kind of consistently highlighting problems and um ultimately either passively by by not investing um telling you that something's not right or or actively telling you if, if that keeps happening you know i think you need to reflect pretty hard You've got to trust that data yeah yeah exactly and it's really you know and i think that's the, the one of the hardest things as an entrepreneur i think more generally is you know because ultimately if you're doing something that's really hard and innovative there's lots of people that are going to tell you it won't work um so so but it's kind of when to when to trust that data as you've said versus um you know, be strong-headed and 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 push forward. And for me, for that kind of first sort of frame to entrepreneurship, it was just just that gut feeling and uh, and that sort of crescendo of 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 increasing sort of feedback that um, 
I, you know, it was just yeah. right, you know. And then you moved on and then you got another idea. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, it was quite interesting because these things, you know, uh, the other thing that's really interesting is when you, when I've been speaking to investors and on our, on our sort of institutional investors that we have now, one of the interesting um, parts is how broadly positively they view that first experience of, of being a failed entrepreneur actually um yeah that's interesting yeah and initially when i was speaking to those investors i was uh, i was a little bit sort of uh cautious i say about kind of talking about that um but i've actually become a lot more open about it because people recognize that it's you know it's really hard to do even if, if even if you've got a good idea um it's really hard to make these things happen and i, I think, think it's how you frame it as well isn't it i mean i can Absolutely. imagine you know i've been in these meetings myself on both sides of the table i guess where you where you talk about and, and hear people talk about how they've approached their first businesses <clears throat> excuse me and, and they're kind of their failure inverted commas and and you see people that really embrace it and they say it didn't work for these reasons this is why this is what i could have realized earlier it took yeah. me a little bit long to realize it and now actually this is what i'm going to take forward and is never going to happen again you you have those people and you have the people that kind of say yeah i've done a couple of things before and you ask them about it and they really don't want to say it and they really don't want mm. to talk about it. it it's interesting i've heard also a lot of people from israel I mean, there's a lot of health tech startups that come out of israel and i've heard from a few people now actually that often it's often worn as like a badge of honor. Like you've, mm. I've got three startups behind me and X amount of failures. This did okay. And people talk about it very honestly. And, and as, as you quite rightly said, it's a very positive thing. You know, these are the things that I learned. I think that's the most important thing if, for people that do have that in their background. It, it's certainly about framing it in the right way to say what you've learned and how you're going to change. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think you have to just be very aware of it was the problem with, um, me as a as a founder or as a group of founders is is it something that you know intrinsically i don't have the skill set um to 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 push this forward you know um or was it a problem with with the business itself um and i suppose if it was the former you know is there something that i can do about that uh, and yeah. again you know and, and normally there very much is i i think the people you know i suppose if you if you if you keep having sort of recurrent um uh failures then then again it sort of raises questions about you know was it the idea or was it sort of the person or the or the founders um that were involved but i but I, as you say i think more broadly it's, it's really well um you know looked upon broadly positively and you know for me personally i, I learned a huge amount both about translating a a, a a clinical need into a business um which i think is one of those key parts and also just those sort of soft um sort of soft network that you build as well you know of people that can help you second time round of um of obviously sort of understanding of how the the, the vc model works and um moving it forward from there couldn't agree more and that what you've just said there about networks and soft networks about the people that can help you second time around is so important it just for me that it's it's such it, I'm such an advocate for for humility and honesty and treating people right and and you know building relationships in the right way and always being on the correct side of giving value versus taking value and all those different things and as you quite rightly pointed out you know when you're second time round and something might not have worked those are the people that you're going to call upon and actually those people that are going to reach out to you asking if you need help because you've given so much in the past and yeah. built your network in the right way it's a really good point and it's quite interesting because i think it talks to a sort of broader point about i I think about the um what some people's view of what a a 
a startup CEO should be. <laughs> a business uh, person, yeah. For, for, you know, from what you see on the likes of The Apprentice versus what yeah. reality is, which yeah. is actually, you know, you need to, uh, if you if you are that kind of person, um, like the ones that you see on The Apprentice, you're probably not going to get very far. And certainly yeah. if you then come back to those people and say, look, I'm, you know, I, I now need some help, they're not going to look on that particularly well. So... Completely agree. And actually, you know, there's there's a few people that push out good content on this. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listen, watch a bit of Gary Vaynerchuk's content and people like that. You know, these people are actually trying to say, you know what, you don't need to be a complete dick to run a, a big business. You know, it's like, it's quite nice that this this content's starting to come out. It's, um, and because there've been a few people, haven't there, you know, quite successful business people that have uh, not had the best attitude that seem to glamorize this, this notion that you have to be a, a awful human to your staff members and all sorts mm. the like you hear stories about steve jobs don't you i mean dragon's den doesn't really do much for oh. um showing that you need to be nice to people to get deals done it, yeah it's 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 a strange thing that's put out and, and i think there's a selection bias there to, to kind of talk clinically about it in, yeah. in, in kind of clinical terms is that you don't hear about just the really nice people that have built <laughs> businesses because there's 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 no story there they've, they've built a successful business and everybody likes them um and there's <laughs> there's no story there so i think there's uh, i think there's a kind of selection bias you don't hear you know you obviously hear about like you know the likes of steve Jobses and uh, of this world and others but you know th- there's lots of multi-billion dollar companies out there who uh, you can't name their ceo because mm. they've done a really good job and uh, and they're just getting on with it yeah and so tell me about the tell me about being a second time founder tell me about how you got the idea tell me what you thought of the opportunity at the time and how you sort of built it in those early days so uh, as i say i, th- I think the the key thing was it wasn't uh, again a kind of light bulb moment. It wasn't actually kind of switching on and off of of, of one to the other. It was a it was a reasonably kind of slow process of saying, well, actually, you know, the, the original business isn't quite right. Um, but actually, through this, I've been able to uh, understand a lot more about a, a, a much more significant opportunity, um, which I think we can bring something of, of kind of very unique insight and value to. Um, which not only I think was going to be a great business, but but actually had the ability to have a much greater impact mm. to society more broadly, which is, you know, and I think I found this with a lot of particularly physician entrepreneurs is in the background, a lot of them have been slightly frustrated about the, the, the magnitude of effect, if you like, that they can have on improving patient outcomes when, you can't when scale yourself exactly you can't scale yourself and doing it one patient at a time and yeah and I, and I think what became clear as i as i as i dug down into this new opportunity in more detail was just was just one how great the need was how actually unique what we were putting together you know could be um and uh, and from there onwards it was it was great you know and it, it was really interesting as well going from as i say that first business um, which wasn't working to, you know, the even in the early stages of what UMED is, uh, the the kind of excitement both from the investor community and from our advisors and, and other people that were involved in the business was was kind of palpable um, because we were very clearly onto something you know much more significant and that that kind of really gave me the momentum that allowed us to 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 pursue what UMED is now. 
So was it an iteration on the on the first company, or was it a brand new idea and a brand new problem to solve? Yeah, I, it, it essentially is a is a brand new problem to solve, but it didn't it didn't feel like that quite at the time. Um, but I mean, essentially, you know, UMed is now uh, using health record data to bring huge efficiencies to the way clinical trials are actually delivered, um, and and you know, we do that by integrating with health data across a network of sites that we are building um, to create a, a technology-enabled health network of, of sorry, te- technology-enabled research network um, where we can both match patients to research opportunities but then actually deliver those research opportunities more efficiently to patients on behalf of the sites that we're working with. So, you know, as you can tell when I kind of describe it now it's extremely different to the to the first iteration of the business um, yeah a lot, but, a lot of different buzzwords that you that you just mentioned in that one compared to <laughs> compared to what mm. you said before um i just want to go into a bit of detail on this because yeah so what you've said is you're using patient records in a certain way to make clinical trials more efficient one of the things you said was matching patients to research opportunities and the other one i couldn't quite remember but in layman's terms what do clinical trials look like without this and what do clinical trials look like with this and i'm super interested in how you as a doctor which is quite separated from i guess this side of of the world how you kind of found the idea and 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 thought of this as a problem to solve yeah so uh, I, I think it's probably just worth clarifying again is because it's, it's, the, the language is important here in terms of what UMED's doing with in the context of patient data because this is a really sensitive thing that we're talking about um, versus the services that we're providing to healthcare providers in our network that enable them to utilize this data more effectively in research so we can kind of touch on that in a bit more detail further down the line but but, but the language is really important because I think there's a lot of miscommunication and uh, around around this space but actually the to your point about being a doctor actually that's where it all came from because because actually although uh, you're quite right that obviously research and and the life science sector is is broadly divorced from day-to-day clinical business the the, the key pain point here is that we would all love to see more research being delivered to patients um, but it's a burden in terms of both time and cost that healthcare providers the day-to-day clinicians and the supporting staff can't can't fulfill you know and just to give some specifics around you know if you're a gp you're you're just trying to get through the day to 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 meet all the targets that you need to meet to to treat all of those patients that have got real problems that are standing outside your door Uh, and then on top of that you're being asked to support research projects Um, and if you got yourself kind of set up then you know maybe you can support one or two of those research programs but even that is still a huge burden to you and your staff what is Um, the demand on a gp that might want to get involved in a research study then what are they expected to do per patient so uh so so there's sort of three different buckets of work that they really need to do so the first is just the the administration and, and 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 actually finding those research programs to start with and although right. the, the nihr um and uh and the supporting clinical research networks the national institute for health research in the uk um do provide a lot of that support in reality it's still very difficult for 
for GPs to actually go out and find these research opportunities themselves as well. What's the upside for them? Are they getting paid for this? Yeah. So, I mean, there's two upsides really. So, so the first is um, that, uh, you know, for, for them often they've, got a academic interest which you know is, is part of their career and kind of part of their portfolio if you like so, so there's that piece but you know to put it bluntly a lot of it is about also helping support uh, or complementing revenue streams that they're getting from the NHS and you know that's been going on for a very long time in that actually if we want to deliver these research programs as you said it takes time and effort and uh work on behalf of those gps got it so now i understand the problem that you're solving i.e that it is really difficult for them to as you say streamline all that activity to make sure they still see the patient within 10 minutes they can actually find the research studies that might be going on that for which they do have decent patient patient populations or whatever it is and and i suppose there's that what your software is going to do is just manage and make easier that entire process yeah absolutely and so so it's essentially automating an awful lot of the processes that are happening at the site level so at that gp level so one matching patients to research opportunities two contacting patients and communicating with them both to ask if they want to be part of that program and then potentially consenting them capturing outcome data from them and then linking that all out together with the routine clinical data that the gp is collecting as part of routine practice because you know incredibly you know we're still in a position where the data capture software that's used for research is is not connected to the electronic health record system so you have to manually transcribe blood results and uh, and and clinical findings from one system to another um and and that has to be you know and that activity is happening at every single one of these sites so if you've got a multi-center trial where there's you know potentially hundreds of sites across multiple different countries you know the 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 manual burden and cost uh, associated with that is enormous because you're having to you know, hire people to do that work uh, and taking them away from clinical practice as well. So what UMED's doing is bringing scale to that and actually providing a service to those GPs that enables them to carry on doing their clinical work. Uh, and in the background, we're doing an awful lot of the heavy lifting in terms of Got it. actually supporting that research. So the customer then, I assume one customer might be the GP themselves, which are going to make money back based on what they make from the, all the clinical trial stuff they're doing that they wouldn't normally be doing. So that's an obvious business model and an obvious deal to be done there. Do the pharma companies pay you at all? Yeah. So so actually what we do is we have a model because it's, it's really hard for uh, healthcare providers to... Uh, to, to pay for technology platforms when there's not uh you know to, to find cash to do that particularly yeah. inside of the nhs so what we do is we actually don't we don't charge healthcare providers so we're not charging the gp nice. um, and what we do is we have a, a revenue share whereby we say to research organizations look we can help you deliver this research that would normally cost you a significant amount of money we can deliver it to you faster and cheaper. Uh, and to source the patients and stuff is going to cost them therefore you're solving their problem by absolutely and, and the it. data capture piece as well so and actually you know the model's not different from the cro you know so a contract research organization is a, is a big uh multinational uh research contracting as it sounds organization that uh pharma companies and other academics as well used to actually uh, deliver these research programs and so they the, the pharma company will commission the CRO the CRO then uh, essentially pays the individual sites and uh, and actually helps deliver that research and provides the oversight to it 
across across its network, but it's a, a manual network. Um, we're providing the same business model, um, but it's uh, underpinned by technology and automation rather than a, a traditional uh, sort of hands-on methodology. It sounds pretty clean as a model. Like, I really like it. I mean, I must admit, when I was... Yeah, when you said that first opener and, and, and stuff, I was like, oh, God, I'm, I'm not going to understand this. I'm going to have to try and pretend that I understand what this is. But actually, I do. Um, yeah, it makes complete sense. It seems to solve a genuine problem in the space. And I like the fact that you've tried to monetize it with the people that actually have money. You're not trying to monetize it by saying to the, to the GPs, like, oh, hey, we're going to get you this little bit of extra revenue through research. You're actually going, well, for the people that actually Shared risk, yeah. It, it makes a lot more sense to do it that way, which I really like. So I assume then, if you're going to get this adopted into GP organizations or GP practices, whatever you call it, you've got to have integrations with all the big software players. I mean, how easy or difficult was that to do? Yeah, that's a really good question too. Uh, and I think if we were trying to do this 10 years ago, uh, I think... It would still be possible, but it required an enormous amount of capital to do so. What we've seen over the last yeah. over the last ten years is a, a number of trends that have made this a lot easier to do. It's not not easy, but it's a lot easier to do. Um, one is uh, a consolidation of standards around data, both in terms of the ontologies that are used, uh, the, the nomenclature that's used, and uh, ontology such a good word. Ontology is a great word. word, isn't it? I was, trying, <laughs> I was trying to find a synonym that made more sense, but I, I can't. I can't. I, I don't know. Uh, ontology. Um, yeah, for our listeners, I was basically saying to, to Matt early before we started this, like this is a really informal chat, so you know, blah blah. Then he comes out with words like ontology, <laughs> really alienating uh, my audience, mate. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, what's another word for ontology? Like a uh, a uh, 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 a way of a way of organizing data, a sort of higher, you know, a higher Got it, yeah, data. Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, and, and the other is about kind of, although interoperability between different healthcare systems is still a huge problem, we are now making a lot of progress in terms of standards of, of APIs, the interfaces between. Yeah, it's nice to hear that, to be honest, because I think when you come up with an idea like this, it can sound so simple, can't it? It can sound so simple, especially when you go, these are the people that have got money. These are the people that need something. And, and those people are going to pay for it. And these people are going to benefit. And these can unlock it, but they're going to see benefit. And you can map it out really nicely. And you go, yep, there's the problem to solve. Everyone's a winner. Win, 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 win. Let's go and do it. And then all of a sudden, you just come across all the usual barriers with software and technology. But it's nice to hear that actually, as you say, integrating with things like EMIS and Vision and all the rest of it, it sounds like it's becoming easier. Yeah, and and you know, it's there's the, the nice part about GPs, which is part of the reason we're working with GPs mostly, though not exclusively, um, in the UK, is that actually there's a relatively small number of systems that they use, uh, and so and they and they generally only use one system as well. So it's a lot easier for us to have that integration. We do that bit of work um, centrally with that. EHR organization or, or sometimes with a third party extract yeah. system uh, and and then that's done then and then you know nice. it, it's, it's not it's, it's not difficult for us to then uh, add more users to that network if you like yeah because because we've done that bit of work first and the, the other interesting thing for us as well is one of the big things that's stops companies that are using health data in, in whatever form is uh, the cleanliness of that data so so 
data from healthcare providers, uh, health data is notoriously bad. Um, and the reason is, is because GPs and those clinicians that are putting the data in have got a million and one things to do other than make sure that the data is coded correctly. Mm. Um, so you get incomplete data, you get inconsistencies, um, and that's always been a huge problem. And particularly when, you know, the current model is, well, let's, let's try and get as much of this data as we can together, anonymize it and put it in a big data lake in a big vat and then throw some data scientists at it to see what insights we can extract um and it and, and, and that's broadly called kind of real world evidence um and it's been a, a big theme over the last 10 years but there's some real fundamental problems with that because you know by definition if you're pseudonymizing that data if you if you're if you're removing all those patient identifiers you can't reach back to the patient you can't reach back to the clinician that sits behind that data uh, and that means you can't fill in the gaps you can't validate that data you can't build prospective data sets in the way that clinical trials do mm. um, and that's you know from a from a kind of technical point of view um that's one of the key challenges that we've been able to overcome because we actually have this ability uh, both in terms of technical and legal mechanism to go and reach back to the patient and the clinician to be able to build prospective i data. see so, so we're not reliant on the quality of the data that sits in the record on its own uh, um, got it. we can go and fill in the gaps yeah, that is nice, especially the more and more that I hear about the requirement of prospective studies in this space to start catching digital health out when it when it needs to be and actually proving the people that are doing it well are actually doing it well. It seems like prospective studies are really becoming incredibly popular and, and well, I say popular, but re required by people to actually start implementing this stuff, which is really good. One thing I want to talk about, mate, is, um, is your scale, because we hear so much in the UK that it's difficult to scale. You guys have done it. You're actually going abroad now in the US and different things. I'm interested to hear how the, the, the scaling process went for you in terms of your sales process. So from what I can remember from our last call, 72 GP sites, I think you're in now. Yeah, that's right. And I imagine it's, it's one by one conversations that you might tell me differently. Tell me so, how, how that scale process went and, and what your thought process was behind the sales, how you ended up going to so many different places. And yeah, I'm keen to, keen to hear a bit more from you on that. Yeah, no problems. I, I think one of the things just to highlight from the get-go is that it, in it, the, you know, they're, they're not really sales in the sense that we're not charging those healthcare providers to join our network. Um, so uh, that's a good know, point. It, it's more just it, onboarding, isn't it? Exactly. It's onboarding. And so that, that obviously removes a barrier straight away because uh, we're not having to go through procurement. We're not going through that process of, uh, of trying to physically sell something to oh, a such healthcare a good provider. Such a good advocate for the fact that if you can get away with, with not charging people from the healthcare and you can monetize it another way, then absolutely absolutely go down that route yeah and the great part about it is that we're going to them saying look well, this is actually this implementation is going to cost you anything it's going to generate you revenue which you can put back into your clinical services and ultimately if we don't do our job properly well nothing's been lost because we're, there's no yeah there's no use of that data um beyond yeah. exactly what you've you've told us to do you know what really similar to do you know jacob from accurix i don't think he yes. ever spoke you do know yeah i don't, I don't, really, I don't know I really don't know him you don't know but you know of them i know really similar to that you know he's not charging them he's just saying use this thing it's going to add value and if it doesn't no harm lost and actually now he's ugh, i can't remember how many it's it's hundreds but yeah it, it's a similar a similar sort of thing 
Yeah, and so so you know that immediately kind of removes the barrier, and ob obviously that only works if you've got a very clear path to monetization elsewhere, which we do. Um, so so that's uh, that's the great piece, and and the other thing that's really great is that we're not having to have those conversations one by one for a number of different reasons. One is that um, GPs are aggregating themselves into into groups um and yep, those groups point. take various different forms they can either be gp federation super partnerships um the pcns now the primary care networks so actually it's very easy for us to uh to target these groups and actually get large-scale adoption across uh you know a big patient populations how many gp that. practices typically are in a pcn or a gp federation so the PCNs are a bit easy to answer because they they're kind of pretty much standardised around sort of thirty to fifty thousand ish patients. Mm. Um, uh, the GP federations are kind of self built networks. They the GPs have there's no kind of top down NHS direction about that. They've decided to organise themselves around that, um, and so they can vary from you know two or three practices to some of the big GP federations and super partnerships, which actually really. From, from a legal standpoint they're, they're one step on from a GP federation where they're where they're actually essentially one surgery with lots of different satellite sites um, and you, and it sounds like you've had a lot of luck actually going in at that level and just going I'm going to speak to a federation I'm going to speak to a PCN and actually getting it done at that level yeah absolutely because nice. it, you know and then and then what we found is there's a kind of ripple effect then as well where uh, you know most of the GP federations talk to each other and uh, and, and so you get a uh, sort of word of mouth mm. um, and it comes process. down to being a good product if you're a good product you're going to get talked about exactly and so so that's one piece and the other really key piece for us is about channels as well about actually uh not just using the ehr's uh electronic health record systems out there like emis as um as simple integrations but actually uh, partners um and so we are actually in the, in the way Accurex have actually integrating into EMIS um, and uh, they are actually supporting the deployment of that and using their own teams to advocate the use of UMED across a, a much wider uh, set of GPs as well, which obviously covers a, a significant... Um, God, that makes things easier, doesn't it? It does, yeah. You know, significant proportion of the UK population. Um, and, and finally as well, you know, we've also built some really fantastic strategic relationships with groups like the Royal College of GPs, yeah. um, which, uh, which again, is, uh, provides that kind of both credibility to what we're doing, um, but also... Uh, you know, some direct relationships that come off the back of that as well. So, so you know, and the really interesting part is how this also translates into the US because you'd think, you know, the, the concern is always, is this something that maybe works in the UK but doesn't really scale elsewhere? Well, actually, if anything, we found it's in, in a way even easier in the US um, because a lot of these health systems are aggregating into very large groups and so we can have a top-down discussion where we can say look this clearly aligns to your strategic aims um, for you as a health system over in the US um, and uh, from there onwards it's you know it still doesn't it's still not quick but it's you know it's uh, it, it, we can get large numbers of sites adopting into the UMED network very quickly. Do you know? Do you know what's what's really sticking out for me as well when you talk about the scale that you've that you've achieved and that you are achieving, particularly the fact that you're going out into the US. You've almost glossed over the fact, which means it's so good, the fact that you've found a problem that is experienced in exactly the same way everywhere. You found a problem that genuinely is occurring 
absolutely every, well, at least in the UK and the US, in really similar, if not almost identical ways, which basically means it's just a case of you getting in front of the people to actually say, this is exactly the nitty gritty of how we're going to solve the problem. But ultimately, sounds like the system's relatively the same. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a reflection of the fact that clinical trials themselves have to be um, broadly standardized across an inter- internationally yeah. be- be- because of because of the standards that are set and although those standards are set in the US by the FDA and in Europe by the EMA the European Medicines um, uh, Association they are um, pretty aligned in terms of what yeah. the standards are and how these studies work you know so the so that the kind of academic community you know fundamentally doesn't differ from country to country yeah um, because the standards around you know what is it what is well, it that's so study? interesting so that that does highlight for me then why perhaps there have been so many startups and there are so many startups trying to innovate in clinical trials because actually the question around scalability which always comes up in health tech like is it truly going to scale everyone experiences problems differently just because you're in one place doesn't mean you're going to be able to get in the next 10 actually when it comes to something like clinical trials because there's so much standardization it seems like yeah, you can gen- genuinely talk about a large market size just simply because there are so many clinical trials going on globally and they don't differ too much. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. And, and as you've alluded to, in terms of just market side, it's just a, it's just an enormous problem. That's, yeah. that's a rate limiting step to us getting <laughs> new treatments with pharma companies who actually know. buy stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's yeah. just, it's just a, you know, and every every time you hear a, a CEO of a pharma company talk, they they talk about you know, just how hard it is to get a new product to market. And there's this really interesting um, phrase that I've heard that they they have, which is called, you know, you have to be better than the Beatles. Uh, and it's a really interesting idea that um, with pharmaceuticals, um, unlike most other products in any other sector, they don't go away. So, so you know, aspirin is a really huh. good drug. And actually, so when you when you're trying to innovate as a pharma company, you have to have something better than aspirin, you know, or, or you know, as a statin, for example, to lower your cholesterol. Statins yeah. have been around now for quite a while, and they work really well. So, <laughs> and they're off patent so, as well. And they're off patent, you know. So exactly, and they're off patent. So if you if you want to if you want to uh, try and improve outcomes in terms of cardiovascular disease, you have to find something that's better. Oh, than it's got to be significantly better. And that's really hard to do because the the lower hanging fruit has disappeared. Um, so, and, and you know, underpins this is then well, if you if we're going to try and create these new ideas and these ultimately new products that are going to get to market that are going to be those solve these big problems, where well, you also therefore need to reduce the the overall cost of delivering these studies because um, the days of a lot of the big blockbusters have gone now. So actually, you're seeing pharma companies target. Um, smaller groups of patients rarer diseases which is all fantastic stuff for those patients but again it just from just a pure economics point of view if it's going to cost you two billion dollars to get a drug to market um you have to have a market at the end of it for that particular drug that's going to be worth it right so 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 you know the obvious thing is well can you can you make it less than two billion (laughs) dollars to get a new drug to market um and if you can then you know wonderful things happen so and you know that that's why there's so many I think people trying to address this in different ways. I love it. Do you know what I like about this story of how we've, we've sort of gone through it so far is that, you know, you've started off 
let's let's call it sitting in a GP practice and just seeing this problem right on the ground floor. And you've sort of traced it all the way back to source, all the way back to the sort of big problem that you can actually solve. You might be solving a small problem for an actual GP in a, in a, in a 10 minute consultation to get something done and a bit of extra revenue, but actually it goes so deep and runs all the way to these pharma companies that as you say, are trying to bring new drugs to market and, and save humanity from the next big thing and all the rest of it. So it's really cool that, that you unpicked the problem and you went that far, but, but genuinely found a scalable way of doing it and creating a business model behind I think that's it's it's really cool thanks I really appreciate it and I, and I think one of the really you know uh, and we kind of talk if we've got time kind of about some of the more broader trends that um are sort of I'm recognizing uh, that, that you see about some negativity and blowback around health data big data AI um and I think one of the the things that gives me comfort about what we're doing is that you know what we're actually doing is not throwing out the rule book and trying to create something completely different we're just saying actually we can just create radical efficiency across what is a, a, a well-established process that stands at the moment yeah um and uh and again you know there, there's lots of people approaching this in different ways and um i think we're just a little bit further away from some of those more radical um opportunities than perhaps we before we go into those trends and before i definitely want to talk to you about about patient data as well because you must be handling a lot of it and seeing a lot of it fly around different elements of of your company and stuff but before we get into that i just want to ask you about your fundraising journey because to build a company like this i'm interested as to how your thought process whether you thought you could bootstrap it whether you tried that whether you thought i'll need a a heck of a lot of money to do this big thing or whether you planned it out and took a little bit tell me your approach to fundraising because the reason i ask it that way i normally just ask people what they've raised and stuff but i think i think your story is quite relatable in seeing a problem on the ground floor as a clinician and then trying to build a company around it i I like the pragmatism there of of how you've gone from step to step so i'm interested in when you thought about raising money and why and how you went about it yeah uh no problems Uh, so i've got i actually got a funny story to start with actually about fundraising when i when i was very very early on in you know the the first idea the first iteration of, of yeah. what i was doing um i was trying to raise some money from some from an angel group in the or just just trying to raise money didn't know how to do it so so kind of contacted a few of the angel groups and managed to get myself on a pitch sort of a fast speed dating pitch thing mm. and there was a there was a guy in front of me um that was trying to sell inflatable hammocks at, <laughs> Uh, and and I was there trying to sell this kind of like I, it's going to help medical research and all of this other stuff, and, and 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 trying to explain it. And this guy was like, "Hey man, I've got these I've got these great inflatable hammocks. I can I can sell a ton of them if you give me you know a hundred grand. I can sell even more. I'm like, just going to flip are, are them you in. in. Yeah. yeah, are you in? And 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 then I was kind of coming along like two minutes after being like, "Hey, I've got this great idea about how we can you know improve." Oh my god! And I found myself genuinely kind of genuinely jealous of this guy i was like oh this i why can't i and you know he had a picture of a of a, an attractive lady on on one of the hammocks and, and you know <laughs> and that was his prop and and he just kind of took it around from angel to angel and it was like this is what i do it's easy i'm gonna sell loads of them amazing give me some money i was like oh <laughs> if only i had that <laughs> like, maybe i should just go and sell inflatable hammocks that, that, that'd be great um so so I, i've had some i've had some kind i of- wonder what he's doing now i oh. He flipped his hammocks and he's retired. I don't know. Well, exactly. He's sitting on a Caribbean <laughs> island in his in his inflatable hammock. Um, 
or, or on his on his CPR. I don't know. But <laughs> it was um, it was quite interesting. But but no, it was a really interesting point. So I think um, I, I think one of the things that I was fortunate again in terms of that being a second time founder is that I had been able to build a, a network of advisors and um, people that were involved in the business. So what we were able to kind of do is a bit more methodically to kind of talk about what are the milestones that we're going to need to reach to, you know, achieve the next inflection point in terms of, in terms of valuation of fundraising. Um, and, you know, my observation is that generally the investment community think in those terms of, you know, I'm going to give you uh, X amount of money now. Um, what I want to see at the end of that is Absolutely. some key outcomes that are going to have a, an inflection point in valuation that's going to allow yeah. us to, to, to go and, either do the next round or exit or whatever it's going to be and so um based on those terms we we you know we just had a uh, and unfortunately i've got a fantastic cto as well which is obviously crucial to this um and we were able to have a, a a kind of very pragmatic conversation about what we think we need to be able to get to that in terms of being able to um one develop the you know cause there's very little money involved in actually kind of validating the concepts with those different stakeholders but the delivery of it of course is a very different thing um and particularly given that we are we are involved in handling sensitive patient data um there's a there's a kind of baseline that you can't go below you know there, there's you can't bootstrap um patient data systems you know because there's you know it's just not a good idea for anybody and yeah. um uh morally it's just not the right thing and, and again i think it speaks to a kind of wider trend where people talk about this idea of where there's i think there's a bit of a juxtaposition between the silicon valley mindset about lean startups versus healthcare mm. startups where mm. where actually you know if you if you if you're having a biopharma business where you had a new drug um you know nobody would nobody would ask you about revenue multiples or you know or, or uh if you were, if you were still in the lab you know you, and there's a you know there's a very kind of clear understanding of what capital it takes to get to uh the point where you've validated that through a trial or whatever it's, it's going to be yeah it's traditional tech investors isn't it because i think health tech investors and i've said this a few times I know, but the health tech investors at the moment seem to either come from life sciences where they where they are used to that level of evidence and and all that stuff similarly you get people from the tech world like the, the all the tech investors who are used to seeing hockey stick graphs and daily yeah. active users go up and as you say an inflection point of valuation and all these different metrics that are associated with move fast and break things which doesn't really apply and so you see it quite often that when people take investment from from funds like that that might be on a 10-year clock and all the rest of it there's often a lot of pressure for that sort of stuff that doesn't really sit well. And you, and you can see this kind of grinding of friction between, between what the startup needs to do and what they're expected to do. And it's, yeah, it's sometimes a little bit heartbreaking to see. Um, yeah. The, and, I, and I think <laughs> the what that leads like go to, out behind the founder's eyes. Yeah. And I, and I think what that leads to is um, founders who are obviously trying to please their investors um, mm. to try to get the next piece. So you end up having, you know, sort of the Theranos style, um, you know, in a very, very, very right-hand side extreme, of that, yeah. you know, very, very extreme. You have, you have fortunate behavior because they, they, they realize that's the only way for them, you know, to, to meet those timelines that have been set by their investors. That's a good point. That's interesting. Um, and I think, you know, you have to, and what I've been is, is very kind of explicit and realistic, which again, interestingly, when you find the right investors, they respond to you really positively when you say, look, this is, this is not going to be, uh, something where you 
see mm. a, a, a huge inflection point in in 12 months time it's play, uh, it was playfair capital wasn't it who they went in for vine health as well yes yeah, yeah. and uh, you know they've been uh, and uh, they well they probably can't hear me actually because i'm inside the booth but uh, but it's uh, so i can say <laughs> bad i can say bad things if i want to but i genuinely <laughs> haven't got anything bad to say because you know it's it's um they although they were generalist tech investors um you know, Chris, our investor director, spent a huge amount of time, obviously doing due diligence, but but also trying to get some of that that um, context that I think some investors overlook around what we've just been talking about, and uh, and the fact that you know the, there is huge prizes at the end of this. You just have to have the right investors and obviously the right idea and the right founders that go with it as well. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, it's just kind of how do you build um, a, a sensible sort of investment pipeline over the course of the business that's, that's not going to create these perverse incentives to try to shortcut and then ultimately do things that are going to, you know, at the very worst harm patients. Um, but, you know, even at the very, you know, slightly lesser end of the scale can end up causing, you uh, you know problems with how that data is being used and um you know and a failed business you know mm. yeah it's nice and i think it, 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 yeah it comes through just how measured you've been and actually the lesson seems to be be honest with your investors at the end of the day if, if you're just if if you allow yourself to get swept away by oh and you're going to grow 10x by so and so and oh you're going to get this amount of users and so and i suppose when you're when you're looking to bring money into the company you, you can be forgiven for just sort of nodding along and going yep 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 absolutely fine just put money in the bank and you'll see the valuation go up but then you, as as you quite rightly pointed out there's there's so much value in actually saying no this is the lie of the land this is how we expect it to work and and then you get the right investors in because you might lose that deal but actually you might end up with investors that are far more um far more likely to go along with with the journey as you see it rather than the way they see it yeah absolutely and it's quite interesting because I, I think some of the investors that have got a portfolio which includes you know, particularly health tech or life science facing tech um and i've had that portfolio for some time you know you chat to them and they say actually well we got our fingers burnt when we when we didn't recognize that timeline and we either didn't capitalize businesses properly yeah. or or we got you know we got kind of uh, sort of led down the gone path by um uh, you know over promising and under delivery um, yeah. uh, and yeah. actually you know there, there's a lot of those businesses where they said well actually we've now gone back and for other business in our portfolio, we may have capitalized them a bit more than we would have done for companies yeah. at an equivalent stage of a SaaS business. And actually they've ended up having great exits and doing really well. So, yeah. um, you know, the sample size in terms of this is <laughs> small, but, but it's, but it's, um, but it's quite interesting that and that uh, actually made me think as well you know value i mean there's a, a fair few investors that listen to this podcast as well and i think it's crucially important for investors to also be honest about what they're expecting you know if it's an angel investor that's looking for quick revenue and and, and a few different bits and bobs or they're looking for an exit sooner than perhaps others might be or indeed they've got a longer term view that and they can they can look for companies like that i mean you're better off putting out your honesty and and and, and things when you're 
when you're out and about so that you can bring in a portfolio that you're going to feel comfortable with again rather than trying to do it any other way and it seems that it seems that some more honesty in the space to, to, to each other means that we could probably get some better matchups of investors and startups yeah i think so yeah i think so uh i mean i'll, I'll tell you in a couple of years time when uh if if, if, <laughs> if, if everybody's gone matt was just a bit too honest and and he uh, <laughs> uh and so no he wanted to to kind of uh, follow on in subsequent rounds, yeah. but, but I, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's the way to go. So, tell me about patient data then. So, obviously, you guys are handling a lot of it. You see it fly around. I mean, if you, you must have some strong opinions as to the best way of doing it. You've already, you've already mentioned actually, which is why I picked it up that you, you talked about raising a lot of money being the moral thing to do in this situation so that you can build the appropriate systems i think that's a very nice place to start so do you see people doing this particularly well or particularly not very well not that you could name them but yeah tell me tell me your tell me your thoughts on on that as as, as you see it in the health tech space yeah so i mean inevitably i think one of the huge challenges around secondary use of health data so so when i mean that i'm saying uses of health data which are uh, not for direct care, so so anything that's secondary use, and that can be anything from actually we want to use that data for uh, to, to assess any waiting times, uh, sort of nationally to improve service, which is kind of quality improvement, right the way through to sort of use of that data as part of a uh, commercial um, drug development program or or tech program. Um, and I think there's a huge amount of kind of nuance here that I think doesn't always come through in the sound bites, either on the front page of the Daily Mail um, <laughs> or, or on Twitter, for example. Um, and I think, you know, part of the the issue here is about the difference between the legal requirements for what companies and organisations have to abide by versus the public expectations of what they what they expect to happen you know public expectations of secondary use for health data and unfortunately that they are different um in that uh there's a very you know most health data that's shared for research purposes is the the legal basis if you want to get into the detail of it is is not one of consent so you don't actually have to go and get consent from the patient especially if the data is being anonymized um mm -hmm. or at least partly anonymized and that's been going on for a very long time and um what uh, and in a way there's very good reasons for it you know because because we kind of need to have complete data um to be able to further our kind of knowledge and understanding of health and disease um but it's interesting that i think increasingly we're seeing patients pushing back on that and and a lot of the stuff that we've seen in the media has been generally about patients not knowing and, and again i think there's there's nuance here to say that when you when patients are pushing back and and, and you hear those big pieces it's not necessarily that they're asking for explicit consent in the same way that you would if you were part of a uh, of a sort of clinical trial but they are saying actually we we want to know ahead of time how our information is being used and potentially give us the opportunity to opt out depending mm. on the situation and that's backed up by some really interesting studies that have been done by both the Wellcome Trust and others that have sort of gone out and created citizen juries to to kind of establish what people's views are on this and, and again the really interesting part that comes back is um, once you tell people and there's a level of education about how this information is being used the overwhelming majority of people are actually very happy and, and positive about 
secondary use of health data. Um, it's the it's the transparency um, and oversight about this that I think is is really key. Um, for us, again, and, and this kind of ties into the whole UMED model, we recognise that pursuing the model of trying to do land grabs of patient data and then and then exploiting that for secondary use is just not sustainable mm. either for healthcare providers um, nor for the kind of long-term terms of patients so we, we've got a very different model whereby we explicitly are acting on behalf of the, the sites that we're working for so we are not doing anything with the data what we're doing is providing a service to um, the healthcare providers that are in our network um, to uh, match patients to research opportunities and then help deliver those studies on their behalf um, and all of the data remains very much under control you know from a legal sense in terms of they remain the data controllers um, and that's worked really well because again it, it then takes away any of this sort of perception that this commercial organization is trying to leverage or do something with patient data we're saying actually you know what we're doing is enabling the nhs to deliver more research which is going to allow them to see more revenue uh, and ultimately benefit patient care you know we're providing a service you know our model is is a revenue share for that and that's and that all kind of makes sense both from a public and from a from a legal perspective and you know the unique piece about the umed functionality as well as that we drive this automated engagement to the patient so even if there's a research study which wants to use that patient data to support that particular program we can still prospectively tell all of those patients about how their information is being used and give them the opportunity to opt out um, in a number of different ways. It's a really important part of it, isn't it? That, yeah. that closed loop communication with the patients. It just seems so much, seems so much more sensible to do that than anything else in, t in terms of trying to put any complicated systems that do any of this stuff, stuff up front. You know, it's, it's so much, it just feels, it just feels a lot more sensible to just be like, yeah, we might be in touch. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to ask you if we use it. You know, rather yeah. than trying to talk in these broad brushstrokes of absolutes and what we should be doing with patient data and stuff, yeah. keep the communication channel open and and just, just ask them. Seems exactly. very sensible. And and the interesting part is, and again, I think this is where everybody's got really stuck, is that you, you can't talk about patients as being kind of a homogenous group of people. Oh, you know, there so are certain, true. There, there are certain people that you know will be happy, for example, for. Um, a university to use that data for a specific research program but not necessarily a commercial company or they'll be happy yeah. with some commercial companies but actually you know they've got a real dislike of Pfizer for whatever reason you know and we need to be able to give people that granularity because otherwise it just cascades into into this torrent of awfulness um, uh, and negativity which ultimately impacts everybody because then there's there's a huge risk aversion from all parts of the ecosystem to to utilizing that data effectively and you know pe new stuff doesn't happen drugs don't get to market and all of this kind of stuff doesn't mm. happen so 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 you know it's i think kind of just as you say keeping that communication channel open and also again closing the loop afterwards one of the things that we hear all the time is um we patients love being told about the outcomes of how that data is being used yeah. so it's not just being like by the way we use this data for this study actually tell them afterwards and be like by the way you know we've got uh we, you know we've now found this out about you know testicular cancer or whatever it's going to be um and you know one of the things i think uh, the nhs blood and donor service do really well is is exactly that um mm. when you give blood 
and they'll they'll tell you when it's been issued um and they'll tell you where it's been issued they obviously can't tell you the patient but but they'll, they'll tell you actually this your blood has been issued to this hospital in cornwall um uh you know thank you very much and and even that is just a it's a huge incentive mm. for people to go actually i'm it doing something that's really positive yeah massively, massively. yeah that's that's so nice man so listen we've got gps listen we've got pharma companies and people that work in pharma companies we've got all sorts of different people listening to this podcast and so what would you say your asks of our audience would be good question so i i mean obviously for those for those gps and healthcare providers out there you know our ask would be to uh you know think about how you are delivering research at the moment and you know we would we would obviously love to have a chat to you about um how we could implement umed to uplift the capacity of you to deliver those research programs without increasing the burden to your staff um and i i think again for the pharma or, or kind of wider life science academic community out there um i suppose generally i, I would ask one of the points is to try to approach not just what UMED's doing, but that everybody out there with perhaps just a, like a touch less cynicism um, of what we're doing. I've, I've noticed some of that cynicism I think is, is well deserved because I think people are, have been overreaching and over promising in terms of what they can do. Um, but not all of us are. Uh, and actually a, a lot of us out there have got really good ideas that can really make a huge significant difference to to, to the problems that they have in, in the context of pharma or academics and uh you know be open to being able to have a conversation with us because i think you'd be really surprised about what we can do amazing so matt the way that we end these podcasts mate is i'm just going to get you to just reintroduce yourself tell us your name what you do and what you're doing at umed and that will see us out sir so thank you so much for coming on yeah, no problems. So uh, my name's Dr. Matt Wilson. Uh, I'm uh, an anaesthetist by background and founder of UMED. Uh, and at UMED, what we're doing is uh, creating a unique technology that underpins a research network that compliantly links health data to real-time patient engagement so we can allow researchers to access patients and rapidly conduct prospective studies uh, more efficiently to benefit patients and society more broadly amazing good chat indeed brilliant thanks so much james really appreciate it hey everybody and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end if you enjoyed it remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content